from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Before our worship begins, I'd like to share with all of our members and friends a little bit about our financial situation. Regrettably, our projection for year-end reveals a deficit of $420,000 on our $5.7 million budget. While we've worked diligently to manage our resources and expenses, giving in 2022 and 2023 have fallen below expectations. I assure you that our trustees, session, and financial team have thoroughly explored all options to mitigate this situation. If we are unable to bridge this financial gap, difficult decisions will need to be made. This could include budget cuts, which might impact various aspects of our ministry, including a potential reduction in personnel for the year 2024. However, we believe that as a community bound by faith and shared values, we have the ability to overcome this challenge. And so I call upon each member and friend of First Pres to consider how you might be able to contribute to our financial strength. If you've already given in 2023 and have the capacity to go the second mile, please give more. If you've not given in 2023, please give today. You can mail a check, give by credit card, uh, give by stock transfer, or use the QR code that will be on the screen in just a few moments. Our congregation has had a successful capital campaign, securing pledges of over $36 million. Our ministries with children and youth are bursting at the seams. Our worship attendance, both online and in person, are strong. Our community ministries continue to serve our most vulnerable neighbors and friends with compassion and great care. Our staff is strong, gifted, and committed to serving the mission of the church. My hope is that our giving will increase uh, to support the strength of our ministry in this season of our life together. We will continue to communicate openly about our financial progress and any developments that we have as we move forward. Please keep our congregation, our leaders, and our shared mission in your prayers. If you have any questions or concerns, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. And thank you for tuning in to this week's broadcast. This morning, our first scripture reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, verse or chapter 61, verse 10 through chapter 62, verse 3. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, you could do so by turning to page 650 in the Old Testament section. Hear now the word of God for you and for me. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. 
and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Thank you, Calicia. That text from Isaiah, as well as the text from Galatians that I'm about to read are both from the lectionary. If you want to follow along, our second text is from Galatians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and can be found on page 178 of the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. My point is this, heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Loving and living God, just as your spirit hovered over the created, the creation at that first day of creation, may your Holy Spirit so flow over and in and through these words that they might become for us a living word, a source of encouragement and challenge that we might be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. If you didn't know it already, today is New Year's Eve. For much of the world outside of these sanctuary walls, attention has already turned to next year. We have determined that today, De December 31st, is the day that the calendar turns over. It's the day that we wave goodbye to 2023 and say hello to 2024. Of course, we all know there is nothing fundamentally different between today and tomorrow. The sun will rise and set at just about the same time on December 31st as it does on January 1st. There will be a similar amount of daylight each day, and barring any crazy storm systems, the weather for each day will basically be the same. The Earth's rotation won't change. The patterns of the moon don't restart with the new calendar. The tide tables won't suddenly reset. And yet for just about as long as there have been human communities, we have been celebrating the new year. 
Nearly every culture in the world has some way of marking the start of the new year. Here in the West, we commemorate January 1 as the start of the new year based on the Gregorian calendar. In East Asia, communities celebrate the Lunar New Year sometime in February. The Hindu celebration of the New Year, Diwali, takes place between mid-October and mid-November each year. And for our Jewish brothers and sisters, the New Year's celebration of Rosh Hashanah falls in October, in the Hebrew month of Tishrei. As, as humans, we appear to have an implicit need to mark the passage of time, to mark this transition from one year to the next. And one of the ways that many mark the new year is to spend some time thinking about New Year's resolutions. If you happen to look at the news or social media on your phone this morning, my guess is there are articles about resolutions everywhere. Yesterday, I reviewed a NPR article that had a New Year's resolution planner, and it offers you a mere 50 ideas of how to move forward in 2024. These ideas range from the mundane, things like cleaning out clutter or learning how to save time on laundry or even how to mend your own clothes, to the far more profound, things like freezing your eggs or getting married or learning to be okay with being single. And if those seem too heavy for you, don't fear. NPR also includes those regular resolutions getting more sleep, establishing a budget, working out more, eating better, and so forth. Each year, national and local correspondents will feature psychologists and coaches who promise the key to actually keeping your resolutions. If you dig, far, if you dig deep enough, you can find the best resolutions based on your own zodiac sign. And Yahoo Life offers a review of 17 luxurious basics for the new year. Each year on this day, many begin formulating their very best resolutions. But New Year's Eve and its focus on resolutions falls at an interesting time in the church year. You may know that the church year, or the liturgical calendar, restarts each Advent. The first season in the church's life is the season of waiting and watching for the coming of the Christ child. As the world, prepares, as the world around us prepares for 2024, Christians have technically been living in the new year for about a month already. So we're ahead of schedule. What is more, we haven't stopped celebrating Christmas yet. Our Advent wreath is still lit. Despite the fanfare of Christmas Eve and the present opening on Christmas Day, Christmas hasn't passed. But no shade if you've already put away your decorations. We'll let that one pass. Christians celebrate the Christmas season from December 25th all the way until January 6th, the day of Epiphany. 
This is where we get the idea of the 12 days of Christmas. The church year gives us 12 whole days to think about the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, and that audacious claim that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. There is, you could say, a sort of clashing of calendars each year. The calendar of consumerism and self-centeredness rushes from Christmas to New Year's resolutions. It moves from the hustle and bustle of Christmas parties to planning and plotting for the new year. But the church calendar invites us to adopt another posture. It invites us to linger with the miracle of Christmas. It challenges us to sit with the good news of God's in-breaking presence in our lives and in the world. Our lectionary text from Galatians this morning provides an opportunity for us to think more about this passing of time, this New Year's celebration. But before we dive into Paul's letter, I think we should admit that it's somewhat odd, at least for me, that we're drawing on Paul for our Christmas season reflections. You see, it's more natural to associate Paul with Easter than with Christmas. Paul has a lot to say about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Nearly every letter says something about the cross or new life. But Paul's letters say very little about Jesus's earthly life and even less about his birth. Scholars may detect allusions to Jesus's teaching here or there in Paul's letters, but Paul is mostly silent about the miracles of Jesus and his upbringing. Perhaps though, the one exception that proves the rule is our passage from Galatians this morning. In just two short sentences, Paul gestures to the fundamental message of Christmas. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. Paul's words do not have the details and the characters of our infancy gospel stories. We'd be hard-pressed to make a Christmas pageant from Paul's short statement. And still, Paul's words echo what we heard Tony preach about last week on Christmas Eve. The good news of Christmas is that God is for you and God is for me. In Paul's word, God shows us that he is for us by sending his son into the world that we might receive adoption as children. And God did this, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time. For Paul, God's sending Jesus into the world marks the decisive turning point in human history. To help his audience understand God's decisive action and its benefit for humanity, 
Paul draws a metaphor from the ancient household. At the head of the household is a wealthy father who has children who will eventually inherit the wealth and property of their father. In the present, though, they are still considered minors or children. In this state, they remain under the supervision of others and are, who are responsible for their care. These guardians or trustees, as Paul's, Paul calls them, limit the freedom of the children. Even though they are technically owners of their father's possessions, their access to this wealth and to this privilege is hindered while they remain minors. In Paul's metaphor, this transition from minor to adult, from child to heir, occurs at a decisive time, at a date or a time set by the father. Once that decisive time has come, everything changes for the child. They shift from childhood to adulthood. They are no longer supervised by guardians or trustees. They become genuine heirs of their father's possessions. Paul is not giving his readers or us a lesson on the ancient household, nor is he bothered by the hierarchical nature of the metaphor he employs. Instead, he is using a commonplace understanding to help his readers see what, has, what God has done for them in sending Jesus. Prior to the advent of Jesus, Paul says that humanity existed in a state similar to that of the minor or child in the ancient household system. Humanity's agency was limited. Humans were enslaved to what Paul calls the elemental spirits of the world. The Greek word used here in, is rich in philosophical and religious connotations. It means that that which is put in order. It can refer to the elements of the universe, the building blocks of creation. It can also mean basic principles or teachings, or it may denote the semi-divine spirits that were thought to have controlled or ordered the universe. In Galatians 4, these spirits are more neutral than evil, but Paul says that they did exercise mastery over humanity, but only for a time. And according to Paul, that time, that time of mastery, that time of limited agency, has come to an end with the arrival of Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. And the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, marks two significant shifts for us, for humanity. First, Paul says that this arrival of Jesus leads to humanity's redemption. This verb has associations with ancient economy and slavery. Paul seems to be saying that through Jesus, God has purchased or has reclaimed humanity. God has delivered or liberated humanity from their slavery. The arrival of Jesus marks our transition from one owner to another. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6.20, 
you were bought with a price. There was an exchange that God has made. But praise be to God, we are more than objects. We are more than mere commodities in the eyes of our God. Jesus' arrival did not just lead to our liberation or our transference from one owner to another. No, through Jesus, we have received adoption as children. We have been welcomed into the very household of God, not as lowly slaves, but as beloved children, as siblings of the Christ child. Through God's action in and through Jesus, we have become co-heirs and co-inheritors with Jesus, our Lord. For Paul, our experience of the Holy Spirit is proof of this shift in our relationship with God. Because the church has received the Holy Spirit, we can cry out, Abba, Father. Through the Holy Spirit, the language of our prayers mirrors that of Jesus' earthly prayers. Our most intimate address of God as Abba echoes Jesus' own intimate address. According to Galatians 4, God sending Jesus into the world happens at the fullness of time. This is God's decisive intervention on behalf of us and on behalf of the, of the world. The arrival of Christ liberates us from all that might enslave us and welcomes us fully into the household of God. And if we widen the focus on Galatians just a little bit, I think we can see a little bit more of what Paul is saying. You may remember that Paul writes Galatians from a place of concern. He's afraid that members of the church in Galatia may have forgotten or downplayed the decisive intervention of God. As he puts it, he's afraid that some will put themselves back under some form of enslavement, even though they've already been adopted into God's family and set free from whatever might liberate them. Paul's specific concern in Galatians is the practice of circumcision, but thankfully there is a broader application. Paul's sometimes angry words in Galatians underscore our human tendency to entrust ourselves to depend on things or others that are not themselves God. And when we do that, we often experience a loss of freedom and agency, even when we're promised otherwise. Paul's teaching in Galatians reminds us how easy it is to delude ourselves into thinking that we can somehow finish or perfect what God has already performed, like we can add to God's grace through our own efforts, our own plans, our own beliefs, or even our own resolutions. If we're not careful, even our best resolutions can become complements or supplements to God's gracious action 
on our behalf. It's too easy for a new fitness goal to become a marker of our self-worth or the sole purveyor of our sense of beauty. It's too easy for our finance goals to lull us into thinking that our efforts alone can provide for all of our needs or protect us from the unexpected. And then there's the emotional and spiritual fallout that comes when we inevitably fail or give up on our resolutions. When we think that our only value is what we do or how much we make or how many miles we can run, we leave ourselves with little resources when our energy runs dry and our best intentions are not enough. One pastor nicely captures this tension between what we celebrate at Christmas and our love for New Year's resolutions. She notes that we do, in fact, celebrate a fresh start this time of year, but it is not a fresh start that depends on our willpower or our effort. Instead, the fresh start we celebrate comes by means of God's gracious initiative in sending Jesus claiming us as God's children and filling our hearts with the Spirit. This, she says, is pure gift. We cannot earn or deserve it. So this year, as we mark this transition from 2023 to 2024, I pray that you know deep in your bones that you belong to God, that you have been adopted into this loving family. And if you resolve to do anything in the new year, may it be to explore and live into that relationship with God. May you invest time and energy in practices that remind you that you are enough, not because you have performed well enough or produced enough, but because God has claimed you in Jesus Christ, because you have been adopted into God's family, because God's Holy Spirit dwells richly within you. And may you resolve to see and treat others as those who belong to God, as beloved siblings of the Christ child. The Christmas season reminds us that we have been bought with a price, that we have been redeemed, that we have been welcomed into God's household, and there is no way for us to add or supplement God's gracious activity. In Christ, the fullness of time has come. It's better than our goals and our best efforts. It's better than how we arrange our lives or plan our times. It's better than our neighborhoods or our social connections. It's better than the cars we drive or the titles after our names. In Christ, the fullness of time has come. And that's better than our best resolutions. Amen.
Oh. 